I think Silicon Valley is a framework of thinking, a framework of executing. You got to have that framework in order to build great companies. And that is what, you know, I think Silicon Valley was a bubble of very, very sharp people that built that framework and gave it one to another and helped people build the same way, which, re- like, which eventually got you to some incredible level of executions. That framework is now being spread out a bit further. Um, and I believe it's, it's become more of a mental framework and model that is shared versus a single place. That's how I think about it. I don't know about you. But. So it's a great starting point. So look, I think, I think there is a, there's a unique mental model, a framework, almost a way of life in Silicon Valley uh, that combines almost contradictory forces. I mean, incredible focus on capitalism, an incredible purity of focus on innovation, a desire to make the world a better place. And you combine these contradictions in a way that works in Silicon Valley. And, and I personally believe it's the single biggest force for good in society across the planet. And, and it is a force and it, it is an approach that is getting replicated in multiple locations. It's getting replicated in Tel Aviv, it's getting replicated in Bangalore, you know, it's getting replicated in Austin, in Miami, and it will take off in some places much more than it will in others. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's like a bushfire. Some places, you know, the ground is more fertile than others. Uh, I also think that, you know, I actually believe every company will and should have remote employees. I, I think the, because opportunity needs to be much more global and talent needs to have that flexibility. So I think we're very aligned there. At the same time, I think the, the value of you know, spontaneous connections and impersonal in, in interactions and sort of the process of ideation, the process of coming up with new things, there's lots of things that do require, in my opinion, face-to-face interaction. And I think to that extent, Silicon Valley as a physical location will have a lot of influence for decades to come. Would it have influence forever? I don't know. You know, well, 25 years from now, could Bangalore or Guangzhou be the new Silicon Valley? I think that's possible. Yeah, as long as the right people are there, right? For sure. I mean, you know, physical interactions are super important. Don't get me wrong. If I could have all 700 people right here, right now, any day, right? I'd love to see all of those people. <clears throat> but I, I mean, I actually think our answers are pretty, they're pretty synergetic, right? Which is today, it's a fact. I still think most great capitalists right that are able to fund the best innovators are still in the valley right and but the thing is so many so many immigrants have been successful and gone back home and taken that back with them that it's spreading right and it's it's you know i i think what you're saying is exactly the same thing as what i'm saying is just as if silicon valley is able to retain the talent that they have today, then you'll still be, it'll still be some of like one of the epicenter of all of this, but that's a big if, right? From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories 
but what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. My guest for this edition is Alex Wurzies, co-founder and CEO of Deal, a global payroll solution that helps businesses hire anyone, anywhere. Founded in 2019, Alex and his team have grown the company to a unicorn with almost a thousand employees in just three short years. In our conversation, he opens up about the thrills and perils of scaling deal so rapidly, from the things he got right, like how to hire and how to foster a culture of excellence, to where he got it dead wrong, including titles and product development. We hit every angle of what it takes to build an organization. Hey, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. Thank you. And maybe we can start by your telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Yeah, of course. So I'm Alex Boisiz. I'm the founder and CEO of Deal. Um, my background is I'm originally from France. I grew up in Paris uh, and then kind of moved all around the globe. So lived in Israel for a little bit, in the US, in the UK, in Spain. Um, so kind of traveled the world for, for quite a bit of time, which is uh, pretty relevant to what we do today and what Deal is. What we do is we help companies hire anyone, anywhere completely. So, you know, if you're a company that wants to hire this amazing engineer in Kenya or that amazing salesperson in Australia, um, you know, typically you didn't really know how to do that or you would do that through paying them as 1099s, closing your eyes and hoping for the best or hiring people through agencies. So we make all of that actually work. Uh, we basically build the whole back office for you to hire on board anyone, anywhere, give them a great employee experience across 100 plus 50 countries. Um, so that's for, for the company. And that ties very much into what deal is. You know, all my life, uh, like I've said, I traveled quite a bit. I lived in quite a few countries. I had the chance to meet amazing people. You know, I studied at MIT. That's where I met my co-founder. And she has uh, an interesting background as well. She was born and raised in China and moved around between China and the U.S. for, for her school. And uh paid her way through school by doing side jobs there. So she, you know, she kind of felt the same way of having to emigrate to another country to have opportunities. Uh, so we both, you know, really, really felt close to the idea that talent is everywhere and sadly opportunity is not. And um, it's not because you're not born in the Bay Area that you shouldn't have, you don't have the skills or the potential to work for the best companies in the world. Um, so we wanted to fix that. And that's why Deal exists. You know, given that you did do a couple of startups before starting Deal, would love to hear a little bit about the lessons learned. What mistakes did you make in the first two that you're passionately trying not to do this time around? Oh man, mistakes I do every day. You gotta have to be a bit more precise. What lifetime of the company do you want me to talk about, right? Like, <laughs> Start with your top three. All right, maybe I'll give you first the two, the, the, the two cents of where we are as a company so you understand the scale. Um, so we started dealing in 2019. Um, and over the last three years, you know, we scaled to supporting today about, I think, 6,000 or 7,000 customers from SMBs to companies like Coinbase or Yandex or Shopify. Um, we scaled just over the last year from 50 people to over 700 people in 60 different countries. 
Um, so it's been, and I think from a fundraising perspective, um, since you guys are VCs, uh, we raised about $630 million from funds like Andreessen, um, Y Combinator, Spark, um, Coatu, and others. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, that timeline of three years, which is, I think, for most companies, usually a timeline of five to six plus years, uh, compressed, led to many mistakes and a lot of fun. Or can. You know, I mean, that's phenomenal growth. So congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a great team, great execution, good timing, and a little bit of luck, uh, or a lot of luck, depends how you look at it. Um, so I think, you know, throughout all of this, we had a ton of mistakes. Um, but, you know, I think we got also a couple of things right that kind of helped us get to where we are today. Um, I think the most crucial mistakes we made maybe early on is, so, so this is actually something I wrote. Uh, I don't do that often, but uh, my, my comms team got me to write a small tweet storm about like some of the learnings that we had. Um, the few mistakes we made, the first one, um, we gave a couple, I, I, and that happens to every single startup, and I'll say it, and I'll swear by it any day of the week, um, you don't need to give titles early on, uh, and that's a mistake you pay later, right? The idea of organizational depth is like a really, really real thing, and when you're a smaller company, you have a tendency to think, hey, I'm going to hire that person, you know, they are maybe a director or head of in a, co in a company, and give them the VP title, uh, and that is going to enable me to get them because they're attracted by that, that title. And what you usually what usually happens is <clears throat> at this stage of a company, you don't know what you need. You don't know what a great exec is. You don't know how the company will evolve. And very like every single, and I love them. Some of them are still here. Every single too high up title I gave throughout the first year and a half of the company or maybe two years ended up being the wrong people for the job or ended up getting layered. Uh, so the one thing I learned is like controlling your org is so important because as soon as you hit product market fit, as soon as you start hiring and building your organization, depending on the timeline at which you grow, most people get outscaled. Um, and the people that you're gonna need to more are not the people that you're gonna have today. And the worst conversation you can have is hiring someone that has put blood, sweat, and tears into something, into a role and a title, and tell them, you're just not cut out for the job anymore. I'm going to layer you. So uh, controlling your org is like the one thing I'm very attached to as a problem. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. But the flip side of that coin is it's so much harder to hire people if you don't give them the titles. Because in the moment, the title seems like a cheap way to win the deal or to win. Sure, for sure. It depends on the stage of the company, you know. I think, you know, as a rule of thumb, I've heard that from so many great founders. Overhiring is great. Like hire the person you'll need in 18 months from now, not the person that you need today. But I think that rules applies a little bit later in the lifetime of a company. Um, I think early on, you want to hire people that are here for the mission, that are here for the equity, that are here because of you, right? Mainly because you're going to probably go through a lot of, iterations in your product and your pivot and you go to market um and the and most of those people like won't be i like the head of title right the head of title for me is a great way to put people at a great position without giving up like vp and that weird type of evp senior vp and like that weird arc structure that you'll have later so i i like to stick to the head of title and if you look at deal today it's like 
that's our titles, right? Like the highest level of the company, if not C-level, is head of, and that has worked really well for us. That makes a lot of sense. So one was around titles and sort of, you know, really thinking about not building organizational debt. What are some of the other mistakes when you look back on hindsight? Yeah, again, it depends on the stage. I think early on, um, one of the mistakes we made, but again, I think everybody does that, is overbuilding. Um, there's definitely a couple of things that are still in the product today <laughs> that shouldn't be here. Just no one uses them and we spend time, resources and all of that for this. So um, I think the best way to do this is talk to your customers. And I know that's like a super cliche answer, but don't talk to only one of them. I have built features out of like, one or two conversations and suddenly only that one or two customers really wanted that feature so uh whenever you want to build something for your customers you shouldn't be talking to a couple you should be talking to plenty because one is going to give you the right directions but it's also going to enable you to really understand from a prioritization standpoint how much is this going to enable you and yeah i still you know I still have features. I actually ping one of our customers on, on WhatsApp uh, two days ago. And I was like, dude, that feature, do you still need it? Because you're the only company. And we have like a decent amount of customers, right? You're the only company that uses it. Can I kill it? It's like, no, 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 no. I'm still using it. Don't kill it. Right. So we literally have one feature that's built for one customer that is like an SMB customer, which I find really funny. <laughs> so how do you think about killing those over time? I mean, I, I, I had this conversation with Ali Godzi at Databricks and, you know, he has real religion around this issue. And he was like, I deliberately make it really hard for people to add features uh, because of, you know, the, most of the cost for every feature is in the maintenance, not the actual feature development. Yeah. Uh, well, now I'm much more structured when it comes to this than I used to be, right? Uh, and to some extent, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer by background, right? So at, at the time when you're building things, it doesn't feel like it costs a lot, right? It feels like it costs your time. And when you're early on as a founder, you don't realize that your time is that valuable, right? You're, specifically when you're pre-product market fit, you're like, you know, I'm trying, I'm building, right? I want to win that customer, which is super important. But, you know, doing this for that, could, for that customer, you could be doing that for 100 plus customers, right? So like that's where prioritization is super important. Um, today, you know, I think Dill is in a very lucky position where we have grown so much that our product roadmap is kind of defined by our customers, right? Like there's obvious, obvious things we need to build. So it's less about do we need to build this? It's more about what is more important from a customer experience perspective, employee experience perspective, go to market, right? So it's not, should we build this or not yet? We're not at that stage from a product perspective. It's more, shit, there's so many things we need to build. What should we build first? And the prioritization kind of comes from, um, you know, how critical, you know, if it's a critical deal for the company that will be enabled through that, it probably means that others will. Or, you know, if it's a critical experience flow that we have, right, then we want to prioritize that because experience is uh, experience is king, right? That's what you need to prioritize for. Makes sense. Let's turn the question around. I mean, you've had such phenomenal success. Uh, are there one or two things that you look at and say, hey, these are the things we really got right. And these are lessons that you would like to share with other founders? Maybe. Let's try. <laughs> I think... There's a couple of things we got right. The first one is 
I think we got the early culture. I still think we got the culture right, but I think the early culture we got really right. The the mindset that Shu and I, you know, we're very different background, right? Like a French Jewish kid and a Chinese American lady, right? Like it's quite different backgrounds on the surface, but with very, very, very similar values and a very similar education in terms of what we both care about. And that you know really shined through in terms of who we brought onto the company and what me and her are both looking for when hiring great people and i think the the thing that is still here today is that idea that we really want to hire people that have ownership but like actual ownership like someone you give something and you're like i know this is going to happen i know this is going to get done people they're hustling right people that want to get things done they're hungry that want to be there um people that are customer centric and they're happy to work with like the, the early people are the people that got us there right we were a tiny team for a long time right until our b round we were maybe like 20 30 people and just the drive and the culture that people had or people have even was so aligned that it enabled us to be so laser focused on like pure execution pure month over month growth and yeah, I think that's one of the things we did really well, right? Like, I think we've outclassed most of the companies in the market by just being better at execution, right? Being better at framework thinking and just going for it and, and working harder. Um, the second thing is, that's like, I don't know. I don't know if it's, and I don't think it's a good advice, but um, we are very execution centric. Like we don't, overthink decisions we just go for it right like if we think something is right if it feels right if it makes sense we'll build it we're not going to build frameworks and decks and think about it for like months we're going to try we're going to build it we're going to iterate on it and if it doesn't work we're going to kill it apart from that feature that one customer uses we'll kill it uh so that's one of the things that i see a lot of my friends actually in 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 the ecosystem do you know they overthink a lot of different things and what happens is that you know something that could take two three days end up taking a couple of weeks or months right yep. and uh yeah overthinking to me is never and it's never a smart thing but uh, it depends <laughs> no I, I hear you and I, I think that's a hard balance for startups but uh so many startups end up overthinking it and you know in some ways you know you made the comment about building features for one or two customers uh as, as something you've learned a lesson from, but I would say in the early days, that is what you need to do sometimes because that one customer will lead to the second even customer, now. will lead to the third. Even now, even now, the more you think, the less you do. So you need to be, you need to be thoughtful. You need to put your brains and really like analyze the problem. But if that takes you weeks, then something's wrong. Any fundraising advice for first-time founders? First-time founders is always really hard. I struggled so much for my first companies. Um, well, I I think YC is a, so it depends your of your it depends on your background, right? I didn't know anyone in the Bay Area, so Y Combinator for us was like amazing, right? It opened us door that we would have struggled to open. Um, so if you are not from the Bay Area and you're not you're an international founder like me. Um, y Combinator is a great option or, you know, very much networking. I think generally what people get wrong, and I know it's, I know it depends on the situation of, of, the, of the entrepreneur, but 
numbers speaks for themselves. If you build something great, if you have early traction, then your life is going to be so much easier. Across all the different rounds that we did post our seed round, post Y Combinator, we actually never went out and fundraised, right? We always had preemptive term sheets. And that's because our traction kind of spoke for itself, right? As we were growing, people were excited about the company. And that puts you in such a great advantage, right? That puts you in such a, that momentum just makes you, you're, you own your destiny, right? If you're not spending too much cash, if you're not going to run out of money, if you have great traction, you own your destiny. And that's the most important thing. So um, first time early stage founder, not from the Bay Area, then focus on your traction as much as you can and then hustle. That's what it's going to take. Uh, post that, I think it's all about being laser focused on your metrics and laser focused on your product, super, super considerate with burn. Uh, you know, one thing we love to do with Shuo, I've told that a bunch of times to, to early stage founders is we like to spend as if we were around before. So when we got to our, so we got to our seed round, we raised 4.2 mil. We got to our series A, we had spent like 300K or maybe 350K. Uh, and that was a year plus later, right? So we were like super burn efficient. So the idea that if you can, like your job is not to run out of money and to build something great, right? So if you, my personal, maybe that changes over time. Maybe that'll change now that we're a series D company, but we still do, right? We spend like a series C company. So we always spend like if we were one round. One round behind. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's well said. That's well said. You know, I think... I, I see that in a lot of successful founders, the, the, the culture of being frugal uh, is an important one. Yeah. And it's hard. It's, it's hard at this stage, especially when everyone sees you have so much money. People, wanna, people want you to spend the money to make things easier and you have to push back. Yeah, this is not like, this, this is one of the things that's the most important. I'm very lucky to have a CFO that brings me back a lot to work on those things where like, there's some spends that we would have never done two years ago that I'm like mm, considering and, you know, having the ability to say, look, like the money is important, doesn't grow on trees. It's not because you raise a lot of money that you need to spend it, right? You need to be super considerate. It's the money of your investors, right? It's the money of the company. You need to do this the right way and you need to spend the money in the most efficient way for the company. Um, I, I was lucky enough to be raised in an environment where, um, a dollar is a dollar, right? We value money and we do right by it. So it, it's definitely helped me, but it's hard, right? When everybody around you spends a ton of money on their employee, uh, like employees, crazy benefits or on like crazy offices or stuff like that. You're like, oh, okay, uh, those guys have lost their mind. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> what other advice do you have on just leadership and company building? You're talking about company building on, on what front exactly? I think across the board. I mean, in terms of, for example, let's start with hiring. I mean, you've hired some amazing execs as the company has grown. Uh, and you had to make that transition from hiring, you know, a lot of individual contributors to hiring execs. Mm -hmm. What was that transition like? I'm sure your management style had to change. Yeah, I think a few things. First, as a founder, you scale yourself and you start learning to let go of things. Um, you become the bottleneck in so many places that you really need to 
you really need to start trusting people. You need to start knowing how and when to delegate. And one of the, my realization recently from a few different things, for example, the three last exec that we brought on, right? One person needs support, one person needs comms, one person needs uh, people. They kind of have, they kind of showed me like what are strong execs. And it's so amazing to be able to work with people with, with, that are so talented, right? Um, and one of the things I realized from all of this is of course, you know, I'm going to be involved in different organizations. Of course, some of those organizations are going to report into me. And again, you know, hopefully I'm going to be a good sounding board for them and help them move forward and unlock them on different ways. But the beauty of, a, of, a, of an exec that works is the idea that they take on a department or something at the company and you never, you almost never have to look back again, right? They get it right. They do it better than you could have done it in a hundred years. And you never have to worry, like, uh, you know, do I need to check what's going on there? As soon as you need to do that, that usually means you have the wrong person in place. Um, so that's one of the things that I learned going from ICs to very experienced executive. <clears throat> um, but overall, you know, I think it's a, it's a very natural transition, right? Like as you're going to grow as a person, as you're going to see the limits, right? And the ceilings of different people within the tasks that they're doing, you're quickly going to realize when, you know, are they at the higher bar, right? Are they there where they're able to really take the company forward? And, you know, one of the things that I've realized is oftentimes you don't see it straight away. So being more questioning around your organization is like super helpful, right? Thinking, is this person actually the right person? Look at the metrics, look at the KPI, look at the plan, look at where they're going, gut check it, it looks good, move forward and look at their other organization. It's like such an, such an, obvious thing to do, but such a useful thing to do. I want to come back to your comment around trust, because that's one of the hardest things for founders to sort of deal with. And I see this across my portfolio. Uh, it's your baby. I mean, you, you tend to be the, the person who's done every single job in the company early on. And, and letting go is hard. It's, it's, you know, you know more about that thing than a new person coming on board. And, 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 and you want to protect your vision. And at the same time, you have to let go. So talk about that transition. So many founders I see struggle to make that transition. And, and sort of post-product market fit, that becomes the bottleneck. Yeah. Grow. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> look, I don't, I don't think I do this perfectly. I'm still very active and in way too many details. Um, so I still have a lot of work to do there. But one, it gets easier with time. As you let go of things, letting go of the next thing definitely gets a lot easier. Second, I think, you know, you don't need to let go of everything. You should let go of the things where you are way outscaled, right? But if there's things you're really good at or there's things that you really care about, like the care that you have for this is impactful. So for example, I love product, right? Like building our product, looking at the, I love spending time there. Am I micromanaging the ICs? Uh, I hope not, but I don't think so. Uh, but I try to spend as much time as I can into that org because uh, it's just what I love to do, right? And it's the same thing for customer success, right? I love customer success. Like, so I try not to be a bottleneck, but I try to be involved in the way I can, whether it's supporting the leader there or supporting the ICs if they ever need help and be really available for them. So I think naturally as the company grows, um, one, if you're a bottleneck, 
well, first you're going to lose your executives eventually, right? They're here because they know the job. They know it better than you. Like, exactly. what are you going to yeah. teach them? That's the hard part, yeah. <laughs> and and no executive is perfect. Every exec comes with their own challenges and you have to work around it. For sure. And you need to work with them around it. But, but all, like, if you hire the right person, or even if you hire the wrong person, actually, like most likely that person is so much more experienced than you, right? Like let them give it a go. Was <laughs> you know at least you can learn from this experience. Um, so so it, it's just the realization that it's it's sure you know it's it's your comp- my vision. It's everybody's company, right? Everybody's there. But sure, you know you started this, you care more, you know more. But eventually you won't, right? That's the idea of scaling. And if you're going to really scale, if you're going to build something big, this is something that's built by great people together and never by one individual. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.